Good morning. Welcome to church today, guys. We are talking about joy. But before we get to that point, I want to tell you a story. When I was younger, I remember learning about astronomy in school, right? And you, you would open the books in your science books or something like that, and you would see all these amazing pictures. And I remember my, my teachers when I was younger in school telling me about the stars and how to see what was going on. And you could play like celestial connect the dots. And it was very, very fascinating until I had the opportunity to look through a telescope for the first time. I remember I was at a sleepover at a friend's house, and out on the porch, there was a telescope. And I was like, oh my word, I can finally see all these amazing images that I've been looking at in textbooks. And so I go over to this, and I like looked into the telescope. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm just not, I, I like messed around with it. I'm not seeing it right. So maybe I'm not pointing it in the right spot. So I moved it around, and I moved it around, and I was like, where are the stars. All I could see was these tiny, blurry little dots. I was like, what I could see with my naked eye just kind of got whoop, a little bit bigger, and it was still just as blurry. And I was so disappointed. And, and I, I was very uninterested for the you know, next few years of my life in the rest of the 99.999% of our universe. And I was like, ah, that's the, it's not really out there. It's not that big of a deal. Whatever. I don't care about it. Until I actually got the chance to visit a planetarium one time. I was in college and I went to visit this planetarium and they began to show all these amazing images that they had actually taken pictures of at that planetarium and describe what was going on in the stars in much more detail. And I actually had the opportunity to look into a very high powered telescope that was at that planetarium. And to my amazement, there they were. All the stars that I've been told about as a kid, I was like, this is it. And it was amazing. And I had the chance to see not only the stars, but certain constellations. And I got to see different planets. And it was, it was very, very fascinating. There was a lot more that I could see when I had the chance to see these um, uh, beauties, the celestial beauties for myself in a high-powered telescope. Um, and, and here's the thing. When I first looked through that telescope when I was younger... I craved all of these amazing sights for myself, but I was entirely unsatisfied because I had a very short-sighted view, and thus I missed out on the bigger picture, right? I was wanting to see all this beauty, but all I saw was blurry. And so I was disillusioned with astronomy in general. Until I had the chance later to see something that brought it into a whole lot more clarity and focus. And, and here's the thing. I think many of us might feel a similar thing about life. I think for many of us, life might actually feel very similar. Because maybe you're in this season where you're actually getting the things you worked for. The things you wanted. The blessings that you've been praying for. And, and you're finally getting them but maybe they're not as satisfying as you thought they would be. Maybe you're hanging on to that thing that you're most proud of, but for some reason it just maybe doesn't seem to be enough anymore. Shouldn't, shouldn't there be something more to this? Is, is this all that there really is? Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you just got terrible news. You were hoping for um, stable and normal, but chaotic and unpredictable got thrown at you. Something happened to you, someone said something to you, maybe you lost somebody, and you can't imagine how life is going to feel good again, 
or how you can look forward to tomorrow. And so whatever situation you find yourself in, you're, you're craving these amazing things about your life, but you're feeling fairly unsatisfied, like you're missing the bigger picture. Like you wanted to see beauty, but for some reason the picture still seems kind of blurry when it comes to life. And so maybe you feel disappointed, or you feel disillusioned, or you feel depressed. And, and the temptation is that these feelings were very, very familiar to the Apostle Paul as he's sitting in a Roman prison being maligned by other preachers, by other Christians. He's, he's being tortured by Roman guards, and he's held there with no hope of release, waiting on his sentencing. And it could have been very easy for him to feel like life or, or even God had let him down and, and forgotten him. Yet this is not the picture of Paul that we get when he's in prison. What we get is the Apostle Paul who's overflowing with joy. We get an Apostle Paul who is excited about tomorrow. We get the Apostle Paul who has courageous thinking because joy is what sustains him in his life. And we go, Paul, what is going on? This does not make sense according to your situation. What is happening in your life? How are you able to have a radically different level of joy? And, and this is how. He had this bigger picture. He could see the grander view of what God was doing in and through his life. So here's the questions that we really need to wrestle with today. What would you do if you actually got what you craved the most, but it left you unsatisfied still? How would you feel if the thing that you're most proud of somehow is just not enough anymore? Or, on the other hand, how do you, how do you handle terrible news when you were hoping for brilliant views? And, and that's what I want to talk about this morning, is brilliant views in terrible news. Because for Paul... Somehow he saw tomorrow, even in the midst of a terrible today, and he said, it only gets better. I'm excited about what the future holds. And so that's the title of my message this morning is, it only gets better. Turn to someone next to you and say, it only gets better. That's right, it only gets better because Paul is making this confident claim. He's looking to the future, he's looking even in his current circumstance, and he goes, I've got this confident claim that it only gets better. Life is good now, I have joy now, but it only gets better. And because of this, because of this confident claim, I think the kind of the main point that Paul's trying to get at in this text, and this is the main point of my message today, is that I can rejoice in anything, in any situation, I can rejoice in anything when my aim is to magnify Jesus with my life. I can rejoice in any situation, whether it's bad or whether it's really good. Because my aim in life is to magnify Jesus with my entire life. And so, um, if you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to open your Bible. Stand up with me. We're going to read God's Word from the screen together. But keep your finger in there because we're going to go back to it a bunch today. Okay? Lots of Bible. Philippians, starting at the very end of uh, verse 18, it says this. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers... And God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me, will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have 
sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this inspired word that we have the privilege of opening. And Lord, as we approach you in your word, in your revelation to us, God, I pray that you would speak individually to each one of us. I pray that through my human lips, your divine words would rest heavy or comforting or convicting or encouraging or whatever we need today. You know that. It would rest on our hearts in the ways that you want to speak to us, God. And I pray that we would not allow a distraction. We would not allow uh, something to cloud our thinking or our minds or our hearts from hearing you. God, your words are life. And I pray that you would speak life to us today. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. If you were trying to follow along, and like I said, keep your Bible open because I'm going to help you try to track along with Paul's train of thought. Because the first few times I tried to read through this and I was going, what is he actually saying? Like there's some nice nuggets to pull out of there, but that's not how we approach God's word, right? We approach God's word going, what is it actually saying to me? And then let me shape my life around that rather than what is my life doing? And let me just find some verses to support that. So I'm, I'm reading this and I go, what is, it? what is the train of thought? What is he doing? Um, and so if you track along with me for the next you know, few minutes, the brief time that we have today, I believe God has a powerful word for you. So what I want to do is, you know, like a, like a full suitcase after an amazing vacation, I want to slowly unpack this text with you piece by piece so that we can look at what is he actually saying, follow the train of thought, and hear what God's word is to us today. Okay, so right at the beginning of this passage, Paul makes his confident claim. This is actually the end of verse 18, but I, uh, I, obviously the verse numbers are not inspired. Right? Paul did not write in verses. And so he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. I'll rejoice no matter what's happening. I'm going to continue to rejoice. And this is, this is not only a confident claim. When you look at this, I, in my opinion, this is fairly unbelievable. This is fairly unimaginable. This is fairly difficult because you go, wait a second. What is the situation that he's writing this from? Okay, on the one hand, you've got faithful partnership with other believers. You've got loving fellowship. You've got kindness. You have their prayers. There's other Christians who are strengthened by his imprisonment, encouraged in the faith. But on the other hand, you also have bad treatment. You have imprisonment. You have dishonor. You have slander. You have discouragement. And so Paul says, in the midst of this, I'm still going to rejoice. I'm going to choose joy even when my situation is unenjoyable. Why? 
Paul, why would you knowingly and intentionally rejoice when you're treated poorly, when you're dishonored, when you're slandered, when you're afflicted, when you're discouraged? Why? Don't miss this. This is what he says. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And that word translated deliverance, almost every other time it's used, is translated salvation. It's the Greek word soterion. Okay? And, it, and it means salvation or deliverance. And so he says, um, I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, and I eagerly expect and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I'll have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And again, that word exalted uh, is the Greek word megaluno, which we'll come back to in a little bit. But basically, uh, it has this sense of making something greater or enlarging it or, it, or magnifying it. And so, according to the flow of thought in the text, this is what Paul says. That he's claiming that he's going to be delivered or saved. He's going to experience soterion in the same way as... Yeah, I'm, I'm going I'm to be delivered as Christ will be exalted in my body. So, the manner in which he will be delivered is the same manner in which Christ will be exalted in his body. And what is that manner? That manner is life or death. Okay? He said, in the same way. And what is the way? Life or death. In the same way that Christ will be exalted in my body, that's the same way that I'm going to be delivered. Whether by life or by death. So, track with me. He can't possibly mean by, being del by the word deliverance. He can't possibly mean being delivered from prison. Because he's making the claim that whether I live or if I'm killed here in prison, if I die, Christ is going to be magnified in my body. And in that same way, that's how I'm going to experience soterion, salvation. So this begs the question, from what is Paul anticipating salvation? What does he mean when he's referring to the word salvation? And to answer this, I, have to, I think we have to understand the scope of that word, how it's used in the New Testament, soterion. How is it used in the New Testament? Because here's what we do. Often in our minds, we limit the scope of that word to our salvation from having to pay the penalty for our sin. And that is certainly one very appropriate use of that. It's abundant, right? And that's called justification. Okay, I'm justified before God. How? Because Jesus died in my place to forgive me of my sins and rose again to give me new life. And when I believe in him, his righteousness is imputed to my account. I no longer have to pay the penalty for my sin. I'm saved immediately in one moment from having to pay the penalty of my sin. Okay? I'm justified. But there's actually a fuller sense in which Paul uses this word in the scope of the New Testament. Either in Philippians or in Romans or some of his other writings. Because it actually, there's, there's three main usages. One is justification. The second usage Paul makes uh, of this word soterion actually comes later in Philippians. And it's, and it's to refer to sanctification. He, he, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says that later on. He's not talking about earning your justification. What is he talking about? He's talking about sanctification. The gradual salvation from the power of sin in my life. That as I work and as God works, together. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. 
Yeah, seriously. Um, let's go back to the text here. Paul's saying, I'm delivered. I'm going to experience deliverance. And so the scope of what he means by this word, I got to the second point, sanctification, the gradual salvation from deliverance or from, from the power of sin in my life. And then there's another word, and he, this is primarily used in, in the book of Romans, but he talks about glorification. So terion is also used to refer to glorification, the eventual deliverance, the eventual salvation from the entire presence of sin. We long for that day when I'm going to be delivered from the presence of sin totally and finally and forever, right? And, and so Paul, when he's saying this is going to turn out for my salvation, what he's referring to is the fact that I've already seen God's goodness in my life. In one immediate moment, I've been justified. I've experienced the goodness of God and I've seen him work in and through my life. And because of that, this is why Paul says, because of that, I have confidence that one of two things is going to happen, both of which are referred to by the one word soterion. Either I'll experience greater sanctification as Jesus lives in and through me in the middle of this circumstance. Like he's going to sanctify me. He's going to make me more like himself in the middle of this. If I live, that's what's going to happen. And if I die... Y'all, I'm going to experience glory. I'm going to be delivered from the presence of sin forever. I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus. And so if I live, it's great because I'm becoming more like Jesus. And if I die, it only gets better because I'm going to be with Jesus. Right? And so he has this confidence that overflows in joy. And so in addition to this commitment to rejoice, then he also says, I'm going to eagerly expect I'm anticipating this with outstretched head. I'm just like, I'm looking forward. I'm eagerly hoping for this, that I will in no way be ashamed, but I'll have sufficient courage. Courage for what? To see this lived out in my life, whether by life or by death. And so it's the interesting thing. He says, my courage, I'm going to need courage to magnify Christ because the means by which I do that will be life or death. Now, again, like I mentioned, that, that word translated exalt, or you might see the word honored in your Bible, is, is the Greek word megaluno. And, and so this word literally translates to make greater, or to magnify, or to enlarge, or to expand. So here's the question. How do you make greater the greatest person of all time? How do you magnify Jesus He's, he's the greatest. How do you make him greater? How do you megaluno him? Let me illustrate. It's kind of like the stars I saw when I was younger. All I could see with my naked eye was a blurry image. Right? I, I look at the night sky, and then when I looked into the telescope, it was just a closer blurry image, because I wasn't looking in a very high-powered telescope. I was like, wow, that, that doesn't really help me at all. Until, until I had the chance to look in a powerful telescope. Because here's the interesting thing about these, these blurry little dots. Some of them are enormous. Some of them are hundreds of thousands of miles in diameter. Some of the ones I was looking at were literally 12 times the size of our sun. And then at a 
beyond that, there's, there's clusters of stars or beautiful arrays of, of gas and stars together. That top right one is called the Pillars of Creation, and it is literally light years in distance across. It's huge. But I couldn't see that because my vision was limited. If I truly wanted to see what those look like, what do I need to do? I need to look through a really good telescope, like the one I use at the planetarium. And when I looked at those telescopes, what happens? Those stars are megaluno. They're magnified. It's not that they were one physical size, and then when I put my eye into the lens, all of a sudden they started expanding. No, but what happened was their greatness was brought into clarity when I started to look through something that magnified it. And see, to most people in this world, Jesus was 2,000 years ago. Right? He, he's far away. He's, he's in the distance. And even if he did do miracles, and even if he did um, teach about love, and even if he was a great guy, so what? He's just so irrelevant. That was a long time ago in a land far, far away. So what? Un until you show up. Until you show up and now... By looking through your life. Jesus is either magnified or he's blurred even further. When others watch your life, is Jesus the one that's magnified and put in the center of the lens or are you obscuring the view? Paul says that he hopes to have enough courage that Christ will be magnified with his life, whether it costs him his life or not. And why would he need courage? Because it might happen by death. Do you see this? I hope you see this. That his sole purpose is to fully expect Jesus to be magnified in his body no matter what happens to him. That is the only thing he's got in his mind. Jesus, be magnified. I'm not the star of the show. I'm not center stage. I'm not the one on the pedestal. Jesus is. And if putting him there costs me my life, I've got joy because it only gets better. Right? This is what he's saying. Christ is life. He's, he's who life is. And if that's the case, then dying is gain. Because this is the equation in Paul's mind. This is called an if-then statement. If Christ equals life, then death equals gain. This is a valid equation, whether it's in physics or philosophy or whatever. But this, this is the equation that dominates Paul's view of everything. In fact, keep this up here. So, this is the only equation in which death equals gain. Think about this. If you replace that first thing with anything else, maybe it's pleasure or power or your reputation, or the things you're afforded, like the pleasures you can afford to buy, your wealth, your success, your comfort, your security, exciting thrills, even your family. If any of those things goes in that first spot in the equation, death no longer is a gain, it's a loss. Because if any of these things, at their best even, at their most optimal, or what it means to, for you to truly be alive. Then you're only doomed to lose when you die. Um, here's a great way to figure out what goes in that first thing for you. When you're, 
When you're doing something that feels draining, like it's sucking the life out of you, what do you yearn for instead? What is the thing that picks you up? What's your go-to to rescue you from the drudgery of unbearable life? Chances are that's the thing that you have your heart set on as your source of life. And when it inevitably fails you, or if you die, you will only lose. What Paul's revealing here is that only Jesus can make you come alive and experience the fullness of life and discover who you really are at your most inner self. Knowing Jesus and following him is what makes your life worth living. It's what makes everything come alive. And and this is not only the answer to the fullest and the richest life here on earth, but even after this life is over, fear is just a, a deception because it only gets better. It only gets better. What am I so scared of? I heard, I heard a missionary tell it to me this way. For the person um, who does not know Jesus and does not have the hope of heaven, this life is the best it will ever be for them. But for the person who does know Jesus and have the hope of heaven and their name written in glory and are adopted as sons of God, this life is the worst it will ever be for you. It only gets better. So Paul's saying, whether you release me or not, my joy doesn't come from these circumstances, but from Jesus who makes life so rich and full and satisfying and meaningful. Jesus is how I turn this life's problems into parties. And then, if you kill me, it only gets better. Come on! In other words, I can rejoice in anything when my aim is to magnify Jesus with my life. Or as the text says, as Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is why I eagerly expect that in my life, in my body which carries me through this life, Jesus will be magnified. Because whether here on earth or up in heaven, Jesus is life and death is only a gain. His presence is life-giving. Knowing him is the greatest thing in life. Following him is the only thing that makes life have meaning. He is what it means to truly come alive. So whether you, whenever you happen to look through my life, the thing magnified will not be me, but it will be Christ. Paul's like, I want to be this. I want to be this. I am a magnifying glass for Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is my life. And so he says this, that that I'm entirely convinced that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And so, therefore, I know I'm going to remain and continue with all of you. Why? What is this? all of this pointing towards? Here's what this is pointing towards. He says this um, right in the end of verse 25. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. The point of this, the point of all this, is that you, the reader, specifically the Philippian Christians who are reading this, but Christians of all time, that you, the reader, will find joy in life and boast in Jesus. 
That's why Paul is writing this. That's the effect that is supposed to happen as a result of reading this. In other words, when your aim is to magnify Jesus in your life, that's when you can rejoice in anything. You can rejoice in anything when your aim is to magnify Jesus in life. So here's the question. Here's the question. How do you, in life, practically speaking, how do you overflow with joy as you're magnifying Jesus? What does that actually look like? Um, I want to take my cues from what Paul does here in the text. There's four things. The first thing I believe that he does is pray fervently. Notice this in verse 19. He says, through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And I eagerly expect and hope that in no way I'll be ashamed, but I'll have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. His joy is overflowing. Why? Because the prayers of the saints have been fueling his confidence. To pray. When you put yourself in the presence of God, there is joy, fullness of joy in the presence of God. When you're constantly going before him. And then that overflows to other people. Paul experienced the byproduct of their prayers. And now he has joy. Now, I could tell you to just Hey, pray more. And you're like, I agree with you, but that doesn't happen in the rest of my life as, as easily as it sounds on Sunday morning. Right? I don't know about you, but it's easy to be motivated to pray when you see God doing amazing things, when, when you're surrounded by other believers, when you feel the presence of God in this room. But in the other 99% of your life, the motivation comes and goes. Sometimes you just don't feel like it. Sometimes I just don't feel like it. So what I want to do really quick is give you five quick tips to maintain consistency and fervency in your prayer. Five quick tips. Number one, uh, here's something I've found to be helpful is create a, a prayer spot. Whether it's your prayer closet specifically or maybe just a bedroom or an office or a porch or a chair in the corner. Find a place that just is comfortable that you designate as your prayer spot. Because what happens is the more and more you go to that place to pray, when you start to go to that place, you'll start wanting to pray. Okay, it's just training your brain. Um, but putting yourself in a physical location uh, is very, very helpful. Now, that's not every prayer you're ever going to pray. Sometimes you're going to be praying while you're driving. Sometimes you're going to be praying over a friend at church. Sometimes you're going to be praying in other scenarios. You need spontaneity in your prayers. You also need structure. You need both. And this is helpful for that. Create a prayer spot. Number two, read your Bible. This seems like a duh moment. But sometimes when you don't know what to pray and you open the Bible, God will speak to you. This is how God speaks to you most of the time. Like the vast majority of the time, his word is already speaking to you. So you don't know what to pray. God knows what you should pray. Go to him. And you might just find, as you, maybe you try reading through the Psalms, and you might just find the right words that you need to say to God. All right, number three, listen. Remember, prayer is a two-way conversation. When you talk to God, he actually listens to you. And then he responds to you. So maybe what you need to do is take a few moments after praying, after lifting up your requests, and be still and know that he is God and he is responding. And he might say something still in that still small voice to your spirit. 
He might reveal something to you in his word. He might reveal something to you from somebody else uh, who knows the Lord and is, loves the Lord. But, but listening to the Lord is actually something you can do as you create a routine of prayer. So number three is listen. Number four is make it a priority. Right? It's, it's hard. I get it. I trust me. I get it. It's hard to create consistency in prayer when life is busy and crazy. You may not always find the time. You might have to make the time. So try this. Schedule for yourself a time to pray this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow morning. Like make a plan. Make a priority. Literally write it in your calendar. Like I said, you're going to need to be able to pray on the spot, to be spontaneous in your prayers. But you also are going to need, if you're going to create consistency and fervency in your prayers, which overflows in joy, you're going to need to create some structure as well. So make it a priority. And then number five, this is just one helpful thing, write it down. Now, I know not everybody here is a journaler. I'm not a journaler. I don't like writing things down as well. I'd rather voice the text. It's a whole lot easier. But (laughs) writing something down makes you think. The basic function, but when you're writing, you actually have to engage your brain to think. And so when you're writing something down, you're, you're focusing your mind. You're not letting distractions hinder you. When you're writing something down, you're focusing your mind. Additionally, the next time you want to pray over that thing, just circle it. And the more you pray over something, the more you're circling something, you're going to begin to see the accumulation of your prayers, and you will grow in faith that God is hearing you. It's pretty amazing. So, Just some quick tips, but pray fervently. Number two that I see is live courageously. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point, but remember, Paul says, I I have the eager expectation that I will be, have the sufficient courage to magnify Christ in my body, whether by life or by death. This is, this, this focus, this courageous focus is what enables him to find joy even in hard circumstances because he goes, this isn't about me. I have courage to go forward even if it kills me because my life is not about me. My life is about him. And therefore, I can put everything else to the side because it doesn't matter in comparison to him. I have courage. Live courageously. Guys, 347 million years into eternity, you're not going to care about someone's opinion tomorrow. Why let something so temporal affect something so eternal? You can live courageously when you have your focus on the right thing. So pray fervently, live courageously. Number three, boast fantastically. Boast fantastically. The whole reason Paul is writing this, the effect of what he's getting at is that you're boasting and that your joy in life will be abundant in Jesus. It'll be overflowing in Jesus. He's writing to that very effect. But here's the important question. What are you boasting about? What's that thing that you keep trying to slip into conversations, even when that's not what the conversation is about? What are those moments that you relive in your head? It's replaying in your mind's highlight reel. What are the things that have happened in your life that cause you immense satisfaction and you're just hoping they happen again and again and again? Where's your boasting? Is it in Jesus and what he's doing in and through your life? Or are these things... What you're boasting in, the things that cause you just a momentary delight. Fellow believer, 
Can I encourage you with this? If you are boasting in the things of this world, you are living so incompletely. What this world has to offer is literally the worst part of your eternal existence. It only gets better. Why on earth would you boast about how big your house is? Or how many championships your kid has won? Or what kind of pleasures you can afford? Or what grades you got? Or how you look? Or what other people think about you? Or how many followers you have? Or how safe and secure your life is? Compared to a life with Jesus and the glories in heaven, you're literally boasting in trash. Don't you get it? The only people who can justifiably boast in the things of this world are people for whom heaven is not the hope. Because this world is the best it will ever be. But if you've truly been redeemed by the King of Kings and you have the eternal glories of heaven as your home and you're a heavenly citizen and you're adopted as a child of God and you're a co-heir with Christ and you're more than a conqueror and you've been made righteous before God and your sins have been forgiven and the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is living in you and you've got an unending source of joy and hope. Why on earth are you boasting about who won the game or how safe your future is? Or what pleasures you can afford in life? Why are you working so hard to keep such a firm grasp in life when this is the worst it will ever be for you? Paul is saying that for me to live is Jesus. And then if I die, that's when it gets better. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But it's almost like you're scared to live and death looms as a loss. Why are you hanging on to the things of this world? Why boast in security? Why boast in my accomplishments? Why boast in the opinions of others? Why boast in my image, in my following? Why boast in my pleasures? I've got Jesus and I'm going to boast in him. I'm going to magnify him with my entire life. And when that is the story of my life, that's when you'll see joy overflowing from me. Boast fantastically in Jesus. And number four, the final thing is rejoice continually. Rejoice continually. I mean, he says, even in the middle of prison and torture and, and slander and, and dishonor, I am going to continue to rejoice. I will rejoice continually. Y'all, do you realize this? That you can choose joy in any scenario of life. You can't choose happiness in every scenario of life. Happiness comes and goes because it's a feeling. Joy is more than a feeling. Joy is a choice. It is an act of the will. It is anchored to something deeper than my experience. Happiness comes and goes according to my happenings. Joy stays fixed because of my Savior. Happiness is a temporary feeling of delight that will go away if the circumstances change. Joy is something that is fixed and unmovable. Happiness is externally triggered right pretty girl said yes to going on a date i'm happy um i got a new car i'm happy i got a raise i'm happy my team is winning i'm happy happiness is externally triggered joy is internally triggered it's based on a relationship with god through jesus happiness has its source in events and people and things, joy has its source in Jesus. 
who does not change. The sources of happiness are unreliable. They're temporary. They won't satisfy you ultimately. Eventually, their satisfaction will run out, which is why you keep pursuing it. It's why you keep chasing it. Because the second you grab it, it slips through your fingers like water. That's happiness. Because your feelings come and go. Happiness is not the truth, Pharrell, I'm sorry. Joy. The source of joy is something immensely deeper than a feeling. Yes, you, when you're happy, you feel joyful. You do feel joy. But it is so much more than a feeling. It's deeper than a feeling. That's what makes it so powerful is you can choose it. How? Because you're choosing to fix your attention on something that is unmovable, that is anchored. You are choosing to fix your attention on Jesus. And when that is the case, no matter what happens in life, my circumstances might change and fluctuate and cause me immense pain even. But my joy is fixed and it remains because Jesus is fixed and he remains. I can choose joy. I can choose joy. To rejoice is truly a choice. So, So I can maintain this brilliant view, even in terrible news. I have brilliant views in terrible news. Why? Because my sole aim is to magnify Christ with my life. That is what Paul is saying here. So, Pray fervently, live courageously, boast fantastically, and rejoice continually. Why? Because you can, you can find joy. You can rejoice in anything. This is the point. You can rejoice in anything when your aim is to magnify Jesus with your life. That is a life that overflows in joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so, so filled with gratitude and, for, and joy and, and, and thankfulness for everything that you've done in and through us, Lord. Thank you so much for forgiving us and for saving us and for sanctifying us, for giving us the hope of eternity and for adopting us as your children and for strengthening us even in the middle of hard times and for being merciful and being gracious and long-suffering with us and never giving up on us and being patient. God, we thank you so much for everything that you are for us. And Lord, we want to make everything that we are for you. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in and through our lives.